0: Welcome, everyone. Sorry about that um, long intro music. I uh, actually had back-to-back phone calls um, from the press, so I'm wondering why. Uh, That was AP, just as I thought. So um, I apologize for the extended version of music. Um, And I don't sound it, but I am a lot better right now. Um, and I apologize for the hiatus, but I did warn about it. You can fact check me. Um, I thought it was really important to get online today just to talk about a few things, uh, even though I'm not collected, because <laughs> I don't want people to feel like they're not understanding where they're placed right now. And let me elaborate on that. I noticed that I was kind of forced to take a timeout and this has happened to me over the past year, I think two other times, but not to the extent of the way it did this weekend. Um, you know, I got, I, I got very, very sick. Um, it's it's not the vid. Um, it was just an infection, Um in an ear infection like at 44. I didn't go swimming or anything. It's not like I don't know how to shower and not put water in my ear. Uh <laughs> you know, it was it was really bizarre because my whole family on Friday got very sick. Now the only common factor was uh, Phoebe going to school, um, being amongst all these children that are freshly boosted. And um You know, what's interesting is, is that if you actually see the polio vaccine, um, advertisements that they put out, uh, with this big push, they're claiming that um, people are shedding and infecting people around them, so it's imperative that everyone get it, or else the people that don't get the vaccine are creating new strands that are deadly to those that are getting the vaccine, hence the um, concerns and the push that they're having. Now, I've noticed, personally... Uh, that having to take this uh, forced time out um, to the point where I was not coherent. um, I had a barrage of issues that were bizarre. You know, I went to my doctor in the morning. Oh, today's Wednesday, right? So I went to the doctor on Monday morning. Is it Monday? I'm going to say it's Monday. And um, (coughs) before I went to the doctor, I had two cups of coffee the way I love it. Like super sweet, lots of cream. I, the first one I inhaled, I didn't even see that cup go down. And then the second one. So obviously my doctor was like, Hey, you have a low grade fever. It was like a hundred and something. No big deal. You know, um, it's obviously an infection. Your ears irritated. You need to go to the pharmacy. Obviously the pharmacy I met with friends got the protocol as well. Um, and, uh, you know, by the time I got home, my fever was at like 104 and was between 103.8 and 104.1. It was insane. And my phone was ringing off the hook from the hospital because they wanted to see that I was alive. <laughs> because apparently when they took my blood, um, and I'm not diabetic, which is a surprise being so overweight, but... um <clears throat> My blood sugar was at 53 after having, you know, a lot of sugar. And so they were concerned about me, um, you know, if I had a seizure or fell into a coma, uh, you know, and they're like, oh, we have a spike in adult death syndrome. And I was like, oh, really? That sounds like a nicer way of saying genocide. And he wasn't very amused. I mean, considering that I was feverish at the time and saying that, I don't think he was very amused with me, uh, you know, kind of pointing that out. But also another stressor is I have my friend who's in the hospital um, and he's in dire need of a heart transplant. And, you know, um, I actually heard the doctor decline advocating for him because he would not take the vaccine. And and it just made me realize just how sad the state of, uh, you know, humanity is in some places. Right. Right um it was d- stressful and you know you could hear me shouting from the phone <laughs> to the doctor you're supposed to be advocating for your patient regardless if they take the vaccine or not, because that's your job as a doctor to honor the will of your patient, Um, obviously not having it. And then, you know, I threw out, you know, tell her that they can't do the heart cast because you took, you know, a blood thinner this morning, because if they do it, I will sue the crap out of them. And indeed, <laughs> you know... The doctor admitted that it should be 48 hours and they gave it 40 hours. So, um, my friend actually underwent, um, the procedure and, um, uh, from last night where I spoke to my friend, they're recovering in the ICU and, um, the South Carolina group just sent so much love. Thank you. Um, cause I've been completely out of it with this fever. So anyway, as I was saying, my, my, uh, my forced time out. Um, allowed me to revisit thoughts in respect to things. And usually with self-reflect when, um, you know, we have time on our hands where, you know, even if you want to look at the screen and watch TV, you're so sick that you just, you're going cross-eyed, right? So this is where the self-reflection comes in. And it had me realize that, you know, I express a lot of frustration. And hoping that others can actually read my frustration and understand the genuine concern behind the events of our world for the past few decades. You know, and frustration, I guess, would be an understatement. And, you know, when I say I'm impatient, I am extremely impatient. But, you know, I didn't realize that, um, you know, my frustration derives from when I was young. You know, I was extremely, I was very young and extremely smart. And let me change that. Not smart, but knowledgeable. How's that? And and able to grasp things. Um, And I actually felt from a young age that I had no place in society. Like nothing made sense to me. I saw the world differently. And obviously I was treated differently. And I guess my biggest fears as a child, and I know it sounds dumb, is getting yelled at uh, for taking out too many books at the library um, and being seen in, as a needy overachiever, um, you know, uh, with the necessity to, 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 to overshadow others where, you know, that was never intended. And I think that was more brought into me, I guess, you know, um, you know mommy issues, not really. I think it was my school issues because I never fit in. And I remember at a very, very young age, I would say about seven or eight, because it was like 1985, right? I, I told my late father, what concerned me the most is that, you know, in my life, I'm going to become infamous. And he's like, why Why would you say that? And I said, because you ripped the Band-Aid off of someone. No one's going to like it. I don't like it when mom does it. And he was like, What do you mean? And he corrected it. No, 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 no. He said, you know, if you if you if you help people, you know, like you're, you're upset with your mom when she pulls the band-aid off, but then she like blows on your cut and you're better. So say famous, not infamous. I said, no, 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 no. Infamous. Because even if you help people, right? it's not going to work. He goes, no, 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 you'll be loved. And I said, dad, it's 1985. Anyone trying to do good is painted as evil. And anyone doing evil is painted as good. I mean, look at the TV. I feel like I'm stuck in one of those Dr. Seuss, Green Eggs and Ham upside down story. And he was laughing. (coughs) But he said to me, maybe it'll be like Galileo or Copernicus, right? They'll love you later. I said, I'm not going to invent anything. I'm simply going to turn on the lights. I guess, and notoriety isn't what I needed. I already knew my fate. I was so dramatic for a kid. I mean, could you imagine raising me? Jeez, handful. I'll tell you that. Um, uh, so, I already knew, you know, from having conversations from a very young age. You know, I spoke two languages before I turned one, and um, I was really into mathematics. From like, you know yeah, before a year old, but I was dramatic because, and and, and I, and I, and I was thinking about it. Maybe it was those special schools. And I realized, you know, those schools that I attended that had, you know, military people and doctors out in Long Island or whatever played a key role in formulating for me, such assumptions, um, and created these insecurities of, um, You know, oh, you don't want to, you know, be loud. Oh, you don't want to tell people they're wrong. You know, it was almost as if I was being trained and I was very trainable, I guess, you know, and, and, and I remember things a lot. Maybe it was the fever talking, but I remember they looked at a lot of us students that were, you know, geeks, right? Like Homer Simpson does when he sees a donut, you know, dribbling and stuff. And at first, I was very, very eager for a pat on the back and to achieve things. But after working with like the main computer system that they had us training on, I, I say it. I, I think the computer told me to lie and say that you know nothing's working, and and to purposely fail on specific tasks, aside from like the traditional things. So you know the people that I work with all my life from a young age to my adult life. I don't think they were smart in the sense of intelligent. I believe that they were smart enough to understand the psyche of people in order to manipulate smart people and control them. And this I reflected on because I had, uh, you know, come to that realization. I think I've said this before, right? But, um, I want to say it was like the nineties. Um, and my teacher, one of the instructors was based out of the U.S. Embassy um, in Germany. And um, I was on vacation. And I would always call him, you know, looking back on it, that's considered a handler, but whatever. And I said, you know, I want to be like Julian Assange. I want to, you know, kind of like change the world. And I, I say this because I had admiration for Julian Assange, uh, you know, when he was younger, how he like hacked into these global systems and they never took him to court to sue him. But, um, you know, he paid a fine and it was fine, I guess, for the time he showed them. I guess I would have done the same thing. Hey, you've got penetration issues. Uh, that's the thing. But, you know, I didn't I I don't know how to express how jealous I was that, um, he and a lot of other nerds and I say nerds, geeks, whatever, because a hacker culture had evolved in the nineties, right. Um, they had the urge to change the world. And, you know, the hacker culture that started to emerge in this nineties, um, to move to this really bizarre progressive Silicon Valley culture that um has been denounced by really smart people that are no longer here. Because a lot of people keep saying, why doesn't somebody do something? You know, and it's like they have, they're no longer around. They've either committed suicide or have been replaced or signed a deal. They literally take them out one way or another. They've been dying in the darkness or even visibly on the news, and you know had no one to support them in that sense. Many people say, oh, you know, they were killed by the government, but nothing's really done. A lot of people actually believe that Steve Jobs died from pancreatic cancer. I want you to think for a second, you know, we have a spike in pancreatic cancer right now, and what's the correlation to that, right? What's the correlation? It's vaccine, and then I'll take it even further, and I'm not going to waste your time in giving you a math lesson. But I want you to kind of try to do the math in your head with simple figures I'm going to give you. They claim, right, that they've, you know, given like so many vaccines to the world, right? Within a year. Hold on. Let me pull up their site. Let's just talk about the United States. Within a year, ever since they administered the vaccine, they've given 514.54 million first doses in the United States, right? Well, let's do the math. How did they make so many doses? Like, think about it. In one year, you have 31,550, let's say 31.5 million seconds. Let's pretend that, um, pharmaceutical company can produce one vaccine every second. You would only make 31 million. Right. So in essence, you would have to have what? How many? I don't know. Let's, let's, let's do the math. So for every hundred million vaccines, you'd need at least three plants pumping out one vaccine every second. So, um, if we have 500 million, then we would need, you know, three times five, 15, you know, laboratories, manufacturers pumping out one vaccine every second within the United States. And if we had so many laboratories, we would definitely see them. So are we getting these vaccines done within the US or are they coming from overseas? I'm just talking about simple math because it seems really weird how they start from day one to have these vaccines and they have produced 500 million vaccines in less than a year and administer them when they can only make 31 million if they can produce one vaccine per second, which is highly impossible. So thinking about it, considering the side effects, maybe that'll help. Frustration is what I call, you know, um, you know, those that, that prey on those that seek through curiosity and desperation and need of information to hook them and rather than just give them facts or, or, or information, uh, they, you know, I mean, it, it doesn't make them a better person and it's like, what is going on? How's this? People cower from standing where they are. And I know exactly how this is. I, I stand firmly on where I am. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was at an event and I met with one of the BLM chapter people in, in Cleveland. And he said, yo, you, you like Trump? And I said, you don't? He was, nah, man. He's And I was like, no, I like Trump. I voted for Trump because I know exactly where he stands. Don't tell me you didn't think our nation was safer under him. Don't tell me your pocket wasn't filled with money with him. Do not tell me that because we knew exactly who he was and what he would deliver regardless of the misinformation and slander campaigns. And you know why they use those? Because it's a lot cleaner to assassinate someone's character than it is to assassinate them. Because then you make them martyrs, right? You make them martyrs. This is why we saw Sweden attack Julian Assange with fake child pornography charges, which or child sex charges, right? That he raped someone. Was it children? I don't know. But then they pulled it back the minute he fought back right? But it didn't matter. That was already out. So everyone was talking about that and the story, they killed this character and it took them over a decade to rebuild that character. So the thing is, is, you know, I get frustrated with people that pander to it a lot because I know that The majority of them are also part of the disinfo campaign. I know this because I used to run them everywhere. I I worked with the people that give direction to the people that direct them. And no one will talk to you or talk to someone else on unless they're instructed to, right? Unless they are instructed, they will not speak. They look up for recognition. Oh, can I talk about this person? I mean, can I have them on? Am I allowed? Will I be outcasted? You see, this is the way it works the lack of freedom of speech, and it all goes back to the ability to have information. You know, it all goes back to this. And I I say this with full love and affection. One day, every single one of us is going to die. That's a fact, okay? We will cease to exist in this realm, right? And, you know, and that's basically it. And what you do with your life, what you gain in your life, doesn't go with you. In fact, on the day you die, right? Someone's going to have a funeral. Knowing myself, I'll probably be late to mine, of course, fashionably. But people are going to fight about the cost. They're going to have coffee. They're going to talk. You know, your Lamborghini's not coming with you. Your money's not coming with you, right? Nothing. And then a year later, maybe someone will have a memorial about you, right? But their lives will go on. So I I see that a lot of people are living their lives in accordance to what other people tell them how they need to live it. And that's a problem. And it all comes back to lack of education or knowledge. You know, people like Julian Assange... You know, as I said, I remember telling my instructor who was at the embassy in Germany, again, looking back, connecting the dots backward only, sounds like Hamler from like the age of like 10. Um, <coughs> I told him how I wanted to be like Assange, how I wanted to make the world a better place and transparency, right? And um, And, you know, I was actually really excited when I heard of Asanja's story because I was like, oh my gosh, there's more people like me that just do things for the good of the people. And I felt excited that there were more people that thought like me and could be really smart and do good, you know, and even though they tell me that I'm smart, but on the other hand, they were also training me to understand that because I'm so smart, I'm not capable of doing good unless they're instructing me. And that, you know, I could be taken advantage of. So I remember back in like, I think it was like June 1st, I want to say, or it could have been May or something like that. The North Dakota Attorney General in 2018 had requested from the court to not allow me to use the internet. And I thought, for me, that was PTSD. I was like, why would he say that? Because that's exactly what my instructor did when I expressed that to him. He monitored my usage and disallowed me from using the IRC to communicate with that hacker crowd. And he disallowed me to use it. He said that I was so smart that they're concerned that people will condition me to do evil when I should be focusing on serving my nation and other purposes that they need me. So, in a sense, I guess this is why in my life, I mean, I, you know, call me whatever, contractor, asset, whatever, soldier, sailor. I mean, it, it, I only wore that title for like officially nine months, right? But I was very obedient. And I guess this is why I, I felt the need for the pat on the head. You know, I, I could not control how I felt when asked during an interview. Like, you know, but it, you know, in an interview, I think it was like two weeks ago, I was asked by someone, hey, when did you know that what you were doing was wrong? In my heart, I probably knew from a very young age, once I stepped foot into that school, and i went on to that um you know short bus with a bunch of other kids out to um long island and i knew it was creepy and weird but i pushed that back i knew in my heart that fixing other countries elections was not a good thing i knew in my heart that collecting data was not a good thing either like um so for example, you guys remember back in 2019, 2020, I was talking about underwater, underwater cables from the West Coast going to Taiwan. And for some reason, the CIA, aka Google, was bifurcating data cables. And I found that really strange as to how and why the CIA would go ahead and allow the FCC to do that crap when, you know, they're sending that stuff to Taiwan, right? And I remember being frustrated. But because of you know the way I was trained, I guess that's why it comes off more as frustration and anger, I was trying to fight the urge to just blurt it all out. And I and I see that in retrospect, right? Mm. So it turns out, you know, when I was you know hoorahing, right, from from Cleveland down to where I Flew down to D.C. on my own and said, yo, we got to go to Alaska. We're going to see who gave the order. And this is a data heist. It's stuck there. Let's go. Because the one thing I thought is they're stealing our data and they're sending all of it to China. Well, here's how blind spots happen. So no matter how knowledgeable I am of stealing elections, I'm no different than anyone else to have blind spots. And, you know, the HABA Act that I was like, oh, the HABA Act says, no, no, no. Guys, I actually read that word for word last night while I was still toasty. I'm toasty now too, but not high. And um, when I read it, I saw just how horrific it is. It actually tells you what the future of elections are, right? It tells you what the future of elections are to be conducted online. They have been pouring money in. And this makes sense as to why in 2006, they su- the DOJ sued New York for denying, you know, their directive. This is one of the most unconstitutional congressional acts aside from Obamacare that's made just like Obamacare. And I read every single word of it, every single word of it, and it made me sick to my stomach because I'm like, oh my gosh. While it has fluffy, good stuff at the top, this is how they federalized our election year after year. And it made me sick. How did I not see this? Obviously, because you're so hyper-focused on one thing and the things you know that you don't look at the things you don't know. And I'm not saying this, you know, because I want a cookie, right? I'm explaining because I'm frustrated, you know, as someone who's, you know, and you can believe me or not, that's, I have the ability to conduct predictive analytics almost instantly where I can literally see the nodes and make calculations almost instantly. I could tell you, I feel so bad for so many people right now. And while I sympathize with them, I only sympathize with the people they could have been because you are going to realize just how evil Human beings can be. You know, I was laying in bed, burning up, and seeing how in Orange County, New York, a flight that landed in that little airport in New York landed with a bunch of undocumented female minors, kids, undocumented, flown into this little airport in New York. And some guy just happened to be there and he's like, What is going on here? And he calls the police, and the police actually pulled this bus over. And there were three men for te- from Texas and a bunch of little kids, girls. First of all, who are these three men? The police called DHS. DHS doesn't know what was going on. Suddenly, HHS comes out with, you know, some, you know, statement claiming, oh, they're going to sponsors. What do you mean, sponsors? Who bought them? Right? And I urge all of you to find the HHS 2015 report, where before I even moved to North Dakota, I had blown the whistle earlier before that because of the things that Lutheran Social Services was doing under the guise of unaccompanied minors from other countries. And if you read that HHS 2015 report, you're going to see the HHS found actual sex offenders working within the public school system with children. And they hide under these religious institutions like Lutheran Social Services, which were one of the biggest human trafficking organizations we have on this planet. And the only thing I thought of is these poor kids are going to be experimented on. And then I reflected on what I missed. If you guys remember, I live downtown in Cleveland, right? And I have a ton of homeless people outside my building because I have a casino. So they're always pandering to people. And I noticed that most of them went away with with COVID. They just disappeared. They gone, finished. And I remember that I had conversations with some of them that they were participating in experiments for this vaccine, right? And they're gone. And then I thought, oh my gosh, they were undergoing trials at the Cleveland Clinic. And what I noticed was that the foster children, every single child that was dealt the most wrong deck of cards from a young age in foster care, was also being experimented on because they are government property. And these children that are unaccompanied and you know undocumented, we don't even know how many of them there are. We don't know their names. We don't know where they come from because they're undocumented. We don't know where they're going. They're also going to be used for whatever they want. And remember, in foster care, once you're in foster care, they own you. They give you every single vaccine, every new experimental thing. And they keep tabs on you until the day you die. They even pay for your education because you were in foster care, because they need to follow you. And remember, they're doing all of this with our tax dollars. And when you think of it, you think, how do we stop this? How do we stop this? Obviously, we stop this with elections, right? With elections. And this is where it comes to, you know, while I was feverish, I was still meeting with my attorneys coughing up a storm, feverish. And I, I, like I said, I sat down and read the whole HAVA Act. And all I did was sob as to how I missed it, how they began the process of this minority report, right? By processing and federalizing our elections back from Bush's era under the Patriot Act. And You know, those who try to fight the system of technology consuming us, right? Look at it. What their goals are in the studies, internet voting, read the bill, data, 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 data. Data is information and information is knowledge and knowledge and power is power. Now, everybody knows Julian Assange because he's alive and visible. But there are a lot of other people that were also visible in Silicon Valley. One young man who was smart like me, well, smarter, I think. Because he had like, you know, you know, one thing that he didn't like to do is eat food that wasn't white. Like it needed to be like, it needed to look white. He had a problem with colored foods. I kid you not. Um, he went to a school too because he was smart. His name was Aaron Schwartz. Um, and he's act- he was actually the uh, co-founder of Reddit. He created RSS Tech, right? Um he was so smart, and he's dead. right? He wanted to change the world, and they were upset because he didn't take to the Silicon Valley culture. In fact, after Reddit was purchased by Conde Nast, and he made millions on it, he was offered an office at Conde Nast. And he just couldn't stand it. He saw how structured it was, how stupid it was, and how it wasn't it. And you know what? I actually thought this would be, I found a video about him talking about this, and I want to share it with you guys, because I think, I think it's important um, that you hear him tell you that part of the story. Um, he died from suicide, apparently while the FBI went after him when his only goal was to give knowledge to the people knowledge and see Aaron Schwartz was, I think one of the last people that they actually took out so publicly, um, because it costs more if you assassinate the person, you know, cause it looks covert, right? So they just do it overt by character assassination. And for me, damn, that was a big one for me. They went all full tilt boogie, right? And it wasn't warranted. It was completely unfair. But I have to live with that because that's what happens. You're all in. So take a listen to what he had to say.
1: I co-founded a group called the Progressive Change Campaign Committee. And what we try and do is we try and organize people over the Internet who care about progressive politics and moving the country in a more progressive direction to kind of come together, join our email list, join our campaigns and help get progressive candidates elected all across the country. I think one of the things we found is that if you wanna run for office, you know, basically there's a path for doing it, but it's a very corporate controlled path. You hire a bunch of big money consultants, you talk to a bunch of big money donors, you go around the major corporations and speak with their executives and persuade them that you like the things they do. And the result is that most of the people in Congress, you know, are very business friendly, very corporate funded candidates. And what we wanna do is build a pipeline to get more progressive, with more activists, more individual people to elect into Congress, so they can start making real social change. Uh, how do you know you're being effective in that work? Um, I think it's it's kind of nice that we have this focus on elections because you know elections are very clear. There's a deadline. There are two candidates. You know, one you're supporting, one you're opposing. Right? And there's a date when you find out which one of you won. And so then you really can't you know fool yourself with elections. You can't say, well, you know, we got ninety percent of the way there. At the end of the day, either your candidate is in office. And you can see exactly how much you accomplished and how many votes you needed to go. And so one of the things I like about it is it gives us this constant sense of exactly what we're achieving, how close we are to getting there and what more we need to do. And why do you do what you do? It's a good question. And why do you do what you do? It's a good question. I mean, I, you know, feel very strongly that it's not enough to just live in the world as it is, to just kind of take what you're given and follow the things that adults told you to do and that, you know, your parents told you to do in the society. Tells you to do. I think you should always be questioning. You know, I take this very scientific attitude that everything you've learned is just provisional, that, you know, it's always open to recantation or refutation or questioning. And I think the same applies to Sasai and me. And I, you know, felt growing up, you know, I slowly had this process of realizing that all the things around me that people had told me were just the natural way things were, the way things always would be. They weren't natural at all. They were things that could be changed, and they were things that, more importantly, were wrong and should change. And once I realized that, there was really kind of no going back. I couldn't fool myself into saying, oh, I'm just going to go work for a business and ignore all that. Once I realized that there were real serious problems, fundamental problems that I could do something to address, I didn't see a way to, to forget that. I didn't well, see a way not to. What did, How did you go about getting active? Um... You know, I'd always been wanting to get active. Like, even when I was in school, I was very frustrated with school. I thought, you know, the teachers didn't know what they were talking about and they were very domineering and controlling and that homework was kind of a sham. And it was just like, you know, all the way to pen students together and force them to do busy work. And, you know, I started reading books about the history of education and how this educational system was developed and you know alternatives to it in ways that people could actually learn things as opposed to just regurgitating facts that teachers taught them and that kind of led me down this path of questioning things you know once i questioned the school i was in i questioned the society I built the school i questioned the businesses the schools were training people for that questioned the government that you know set up this whole structure and um, what what
2: were the projects or campaigns that you first got involved with um
1: well, like i said i got interested in in educational stuff i don't think I really got involved in a political campaign. I spent a lot of time, you know, after that, wondering what it is that I could really affect. You know, I did a lot of writing and a lot of reading, but a lot of the stuff I read about social change, you know, seemed to come from this model, you know, in in the revolutions in the 60s. People thought, oh, if we just get enough people together, you know, who are angry, then all of a sudden, magically, this revolution will happen and we'll take over the country. And, you know, it just didn't make sense to me. I think it you know, now I have more background, more context. I think it came out of this experience of watching the Soviet Union where, because the Soviet Union was so underdeveloped and, you know, there weren't very many political structures in place. It was true that a small group of people getting a bunch of people angry could kind of take over the whole country. And I just don't think that can happen in developed countries like the US or Ireland. So I began wondering, what is it that you can do in developed countries? You know, everything seems so ineffective and so powerless. And it wasn't until just recently that I started thinking, okay, the internet provides this opportunity now to raise money, to get candidates elected. You know, it used to be there was just no way for a small group of people to go up against the power of big money. But one of the things we've seen at PCCC is that, you know, there's just a couple of us who work there. And in the past year, you know, using nothing basically computers and, you know, our own apartments, we've gotten 300,000 people to join our list and raised $1.25 million. I mean, that's just, you know, three people were able to make a huge difference like that. And that, I think, the, means the internet really provides this chance where we can start taking on big corporations.
2: And as you, over the last few years, or as you developed your interest in social activism, have there been any people or ideas or resources or organizations that have really inspired you? Any particular good big thinkers?
1: I mean, the thing that, you know, really got me thinking along those lines was right before I went to college, I read two books. I read a book, Moral Mazes by Robert Jackal, which is a study of how corporations work. And it's it's actually a fascinating book. The sociologist he kind of picks a corporation at random and just goes and studies the middle managers, you know, not the people who do any of the grunt work, and not the big decision makers, just the people whose job is to make sure that things day to day get done. And he shows how even though they're all perfectly reasonable people, perfectly nice people, you know, you'd be happy to meet any of them. All the things that they were accomplishing were just incredibly evil, right? So you have you know these people, just this average corporation, right? They're making decisions to blow out the workers in their factories' eardrums to poison the lakes and the lagoons nearby to make these products that were filled with toxic chemicals that poisoned their customers. not because any of them were bad people that wanted to kill their workers and their neighborhood and their customers, but just because that was the logic of the situation they were in. Another the book I read was the book Understanding Power by Noam Chomsky, which kind of took the same sort of analysis and applied it to a wider society, which said, you know, we're in a situation where it's, you know, maybe filled with perfectly good people, but they're in these structures that cause them to continually do evil, to invade countries, to bomb people, you know, to, to take money from poor people and give it to rich people, to do all these things that are wrong. And you
2: know, those books really opened my eyes about just how bad the society we were living in is. Um, is there any key message that you' give to anybody watching this interview or listening in any key points you'd like to encourage people to to keep in mind when they're thinking about the issues that affect them or what the, the issues that they might want to take action on yeah I mean I think the most important thing is to realize that you can,
1: can accomplish something you know I know sometimes it feels you just feel powerless that you're one small person in this world of big qu- Corporations and big evil people and big media companies, and so on. There's just nothing you can do. But the fact is, a lot of the reason it seems like that is because people feel powerless. People are afraid to do anything. You know, for a long time, I felt I watched the news, and all I saw was this stuff, this corporate propaganda, and this kind of anti activism attacks. And I thought, you know, the news media was just inevitably biased against us, that there was just no hope, that the only solution was to create alternative news streams. Now, the P-Trip, I found It's not that the news media is inevitably biased against us. It's that, you know, reporters like all of us are just kind of lazy. You know, they report the stories that people give them and there are huge companies that are willing to write up stories for them and hand them to them on a silver platter. So all they have to do is type them up. You know, of course they're gonna do that. And it turned out when we did the same thing, when we started writing press releases and we started going to reporters and pitching in them stories, they were just as happy to write about us as they were about Coca-Cola. And so, you know, because I had believed so long that change was impossible, it precluded me from taking any actions that could have caused that change. And so I think the first step for everyone out there is just to believe that you can accomplish something because once you believe that, you know, you're half the way to actually doing something that could be changed and they were things that more importantly were wrong and should change and once i realized that there was really kind of no going back i couldn't fool myself into saying oh i'm just going to go work for a business and ignore all that once i realized that there were real serious problems fundamental problems that i could do something to address i didn't see a way to, to forget that i didn't no. see a way not to what did you, why did you go about getting active um, you know, I'd always been wanting to get active. Like even when I was in school, I was very frustrated with school. I thought you know, the teachers didn't know what they were talking about and they were very domineering and controlling and the homework was kind of a sham. And it was just like, you know, all the way to pen students together and force them to do busy work. And, you know, I started reading books about like, the history of education and how this educational system was developed and you know, alternatives to it in ways that people could actually learn things as opposed to just regurgitating facts that teachers taught them. And that kind of led me down this path of questioning things. You know, once I questioned the school I was in, I questioned the society that built the school, I questioned the businesses that
2: the schools were training people for, and I questioned the government that, you know, set up this whole structure. And what were what, the projects or campaigns that you first got involved with? Um, Like I said, I got
1: interested in in educational stuff. I don't think I really got involved in a political campaign. I spent a lot of time, you know, after that, wondering what it is that I could really affect. You know, I did a lot of writing and a lot of reading, but a lot of the stuff I read about social change, you know, seemed to come from this model, you know, in in the revolution. in the 60s, people thought, oh, if we just get enough people together, you know, who are angry, then all of a sudden, magically, this revolution will happen and we'll take over the country. And, you know, it just didn't make sense to me. I think it, you know, now I have more background, more context. I think it came out of this experience of watching the Soviet Union where, because the Soviet Union was so underdeveloped and, you know, there weren't very many political structures in place, it was true that a small group of people getting a bunch of people angry could kind of take over the whole country. And I just don't think that can happen in developed countries like the US or Ireland. So I began wondering, what is it that you can do in developed countries, you know, everything seems so ineffective and so powerless and it wasn't until just recently that i started thinking okay the internet provides this opportunity now to raise money to get candidates elected you know it used to be there was just no way for a small group of people to go up against the power of big money but one of the things we've seen at pccc is that you know there's just a couple of us who work there and in the past year you know using nothing but basically computers and you know our own apartments we've gotten 300,000 people to join our list and raised 1.25 million dollars. I mean, that's just, you know, three people were able to make a huge difference like that. And that, I think that means the internet really provides this chance where we can start taking on big corporations.
2: And um, as you, over the last few years, or as you developed your interest in social activism, have there been any people or ideas or resources or organizations that have really inspired you? Any particular good thinkers? I mean, the thing that, you know, really got me thinking along these
1: lines was right before i went to college i read two books i read a book moral mazes by robert jackal which is a study of how corporations work and it's it's actually a fascinating book the sociologist he kind of picks a corporation random and just goes and studies the middle managers you know not the people who do any of the grunt work and not the big decision makers just the people whose job is to make sure that things day-to-day get done he shows how even though they're all perfectly reasonable people perfectly nice people you know you be happy to meet any of them. All the things that they were accomplishing were just incredibly evil, right? So you have, you know, these people, just this average corporation, right? They're making decisions to blow out the workers in their factories, eardrums, to poison the lakes and the lagoons nearby to make these products that were filled with toxic chemicals that poison their customers, not because any of them were bad people who wanted to kill their workers and their neighborhood and their customers, but just because that was the logic of the situation they were in. Another book I read was the book *Understanding Power* by Noam Chomsky, which kind of took the same sort of analysis and applied it to the wider society, which said, you know, we're in a situation where it's, you know, maybe filled with perfectly good people, but they're in these structures that cause them to continually do evil, to invade countries, to bomb people, you know, to to take money from poor people and give it to rich people to do all these things that are wrong. And, you know,
2: those books really opened my eyes about just how bad the society we were living. Um, is there any key message that you'd give to anybody watching this interview or listening in? Any key points you'd like to encourage people to, to keep in mind when they're thinking about the issues that affect them or what they, the issues that they might want to take action on? Yeah. I mean, I think the most important
1: thing is to realize that you can accomplish something. You know, I know sometimes it feels, you just feel powerless. That you're one small person in this world of big corporations and big evil people and big media companies and so on. There's just nothing you can do. But the fact is, a lot of the reason it seems like that is because people feel powerless. People are afraid to do anything. You know, for a long time I felt, I watched the news and all I saw was this stuff, this corporate propaganda and this kind of anti-activism attacks. And I thought you know, the news media was just inevitably biased against us, that there was just no hope. The only solution was to create alternative news streams. Now, at the P-Trip, I found, it's not that the news media is inevitably biased against us. It's that, you know, reporters, like all of us, are just kind of lazy. You know, they report the stories that people give them, and there are huge companies that are willing to write up stories for them and hand them to them on a silver platter. So all they have to do is take them You know, of course they're going to do that. And it turned out when we did the same thing, when we started writing press releases and we started going to reporters and pitching them stories, they were just as happy to write about us as they were about Coca-Cola. And so, you know, because I had believed so long that change was impossible, it precluded me from taking any actions that could have caused that change. And so I think the first step for everyone out there is just, to believe that you can accomplish something because once you believe that, you
0: know, you're half the way to, to actually do it. So he passed away and they say that he committed suicide, but let me tell you about him in a short version. So they take this young man who had caused an immense amount of change and they sent him to Silicon Valley. He rejected, he rejected the Silicon Valley culture of you know, wearing my flip-flops and Birkenstocks and making millions just writing stuff up. He hated it. He hated it so much he got himself fired because he never turned up to work. So the CIA went into motion. What they did was they needed to take this young man who obviously was different, right? And they proposed to him, without his knowledge, a person who was someone you'd never expect someone to be with. So his actual first real girlfriend was a woman who had a child. She was single and um, she attached herself to him. And let me tell you what this boy did. When he was in um Stanford, he had downloaded the whole Westlaw database with code, like downloaded it. And Westlaw costs a lot. I pay, you know, your support to me allows me to pay for the software that big law firms do. It's like $1,000 a month. No joke. And I get to scour all the lawsuits that should be free, but also pointers on it. And what he did was he ran an analysis at Stanford and showed that people that were getting sued um, for things were paying researchers to support them. That's number one. He also did the following PACER. I'm pretty sure a lot of you now getting into, you know, the legal crux of things, right? Where you filed your own lawsuits, your writs, you did homework. Pacer charges you 10 cents a page. Now, as we know, as we know, lawsuits should be free and available to us because they are the law of the land. It is information that we pay for with our tax dollars. We shouldn't have to pay for it. So what he did was he ran a code and downloaded, I think it was like over 20 million documents from Pacer without paying anything. And so what he did was he downloaded all these documents and the FBI opened up an investigation on him. And while he did that, he noticed that PACER, you know, obviously he just wanted to give it to people for free and create a database for free, right? He wanted people to have access, freedom of information, right? So he was trying to use this skill to help people, to give them knowledge, right? To give them knowledge. And, um, what he did was, uh, when he did that, the FBI opened up an investigation to try to charge him with theft, but it turns out he noticed that on Pacer, all the system of Pacer had violated privacy rights. So the FBI couldn't pursue charges up against him because they violated privacy rights. So they had to drop that and close the case. Fast forward, uh, he was at Harvard doing some fellowship and he noticed something. Something that I noticed when I was at the University of Kentucky Medical Center, my favorite thing that I had as a registered student was unfettered access to JSTOR and Alvesier. It's where all the research that we pay with our tax dollars resides. And it's behind these huge paywalls. That is science, not a textbook. That's science. Not what your teacher says or your professor because it's always biased. It's unfettered research where they can back it up and they want you to pay for it. So if you don't have money, guess what? You don't get to see information. So what he wanted to do is give that information for free. Well, he did that. So what he did was he did it on um through Harvard's Wi-Fi network. Um, Just or realized that there was huge downloads coming. They cut it. He changed his network and his identifiers, did it again. So what he thought is, All right, I'm gonna go hook it up directly to the Ethernet. And what he did was he went to a basement, <coughs> he hooked up his computer with a hard drive and kept downloading. And the FBI figured it out, so they monitored him and put a video camera in the closet where he had his computer downloading all this data, and they caught him on camera doing it. So, they wanted to charge him with theft. At that time, he was still seeing the handler, you know, the girlfriend with the child, that was his girlfriend supposedly, um, who was the nail on the coffin for him. She had a, you know, queen for a day, uh, you know, proffer, Um I've been offered those twice in my life, Um, declined to speak to them twice with those, which is where you could tell them everything and you have full immunity. Right. Um, And, uh, you know, they they offered him a deal. And they were like this. He's like, no, I'm doing this because this is federally tax, federally funded research. People should have access to it. And I'm researching to see which corporations are paying for this climate change research bullshit. So at that time, while the investigation was ongoing... Right. And his girlfriend had turned him over because he was like, I, I think he had like this blog where he talked about gorilla, whatever, whatever, because, you know, he was frustrated. Kind of the way the frustration that I express many, many times, uh, you know, when I, when I when I'm speaking, he was frustrated. So it was one of those frustration things. Anyway, he broke up with her. Right. She had other lawyers and she felt all bad bullshit. Right. I watched the whole case. I felt so bad. I was like, geez, they're going to take him out. He got involved into politics, went and supported Fikeahantes, was down at the Capitol, and all of these people, this hacker, you know, the core of why the nerds got together was to liberate people, have shifted. You know, at that time, Fikeahantes pushed herself as someone for freedom. Zoe Lofner, Wyden, all of them were all about freedom. And um, it was the SOPA Act that really put him on the mark. Do you guys remember that? He was the reason SOPA never passed. So I'm just going to play a clip of him talking about the SOPA Act because Obama took him out. There should be justice for this young man. And Obama should be held accountable for this. One million percent. Take a listen.
1: Online infringement and counterfeiting act. Oh, Peter, I said, I don't care about copyright law. Maybe you're right. Maybe Hollywood is right. But either way, what's the big deal? I'm not going to waste my time fighting over a little issue like copyright. Health care, sure, financial reform. Those are the sorts of issues I want to work on. Not something obscure like copyright. I could hear Peter grumbling. Look, he said, I don't have time to argue with you. But it doesn't matter for right now. Because this isn't a bill about copyright. It's not? No. It's a bill about freedom of speech. Now I was listening. And Peter explained what you've all probably long since learned. That this bill would allow the government to devise a list of websites that Americans weren't allowed to visit. On the next day, I came up with a whole bunch of ways to try and explain this to people. I said it was like a great firewall of America. I said it was like an internet blacklist. I said it was online censorship.
3: But I think it's worth
1: taking a step back, putting aside the rhetoric... And thinking about how radical this bill really was. Yes, there are lots of times when the government makes rules about if you slander a private figure, if you put a television on that lies to people, if you have a wild party that plays blue music all oh In all of these cases the government can stop you. But this was something radically different. It wasn't the government went to people and asked them to take down particular material that was illegal. It shut down a whole Websites. Essentially, it stopped entire groups of Americans from communicating with everyone in America. There's nothing like it in you, this law. If you play loud music all night, the government doesn't slap you with an order requiring you to be new for the next couple weeks. They don't say nobody can make any more noise inside your house. There's a specific complaint, which they ask you to specifically remedy, and then your life goes on. The closest case I could find of this was a like, case where the government was at war with this adult bookstore, the store kept selling to one, and the government kept getting it declared illegal, and then, frustrated, they decided to shut the whole bookstore down. Even that, even that case was declared unconstitutional, a violation of the First Amendment. Though, you might say, sure, the court would get declared unconstitutional, too. Yeah, but I knew the Supreme Court had one blind spot around the First Amendment.
4: More than anything
1: else, more than slander, or libel, or pornography, more even... Child pornography, it was copyright, but it came to copyright. It was like part of the justice's brains shut off, and they totally forgot about the first amendment. You got the sense that deep down, they didn't think the first amendment was an issue.
0: Okay, so let me explain this because a lot of people are complaining that they can't hear. Remember, this is streamed for where he was having a conversation with students. What he was explaining is that the uh, SOPA Act, which was called the Stop Online Piracy Act, was a violation of the First Amendment. And if you guys remember back then, Wikipedia and Reddit went dark for a day. And um, that's why the act didn't go. This was their first attempt under Barack Hussein Obama to silence alternative voices. Remember, this was a president five minutes in that signed an executive order to seal his records, right? And so they claimed that it would be copyright, but here's the copyright. If you copy somebody's code to make a page and he goes and says, this senator that supported it, well, he would have been shut down because his whole website had copied code from somewhere else. This was the way that they were going to sequester information. And like he said in his previous interview, when you go to school, it's stupid. Because you're only learning about the version that the teacher believes on history and math and in science. It's what they say. He was extremely vulnerable to these sharks. And no matter what they threw at him, that be money or notoriety, he did not bend the knee. He tried to ensure that the First Amendment was there. And he believed exactly what Julian Assange has been saying. Knowledge is power. And wars are started with lies and therefore truth can stop wars. And that's the thing. He pointed this out. He made that his life was not in vain, first of all, because he stopped that. Because right now, you wouldn't be able to hear my voice if he didn't. You would probably be somewhere on the internet, and that's if you were versed and were able to access it because they would have strangulated the IP access. They are ushering us into the CCP system. They want us to be voting from our phones, paying all our bills from our phones. You know, Elon, we're not going to agree on this bullshit. Technology is supposed to serve us, not the other way around. And Aaron Schwartz, I think there's a movie docu about him. It is a really painful story. And then he went from one handler to another, but whatever. <laughs> if you actually watch it, I haven't watched it in years. Um, but I can tell you, you know, this was Obama's doing, and there should be justice for him. And if you remember, um, Sarah Palin had some beef with Assange. Do you guys know why she had beef? Well, well, let's do that after. Mm, Well, let's show why she had beef first, and then we'll take a break.
2: Republicans in the Senate trying to make a name for themselves, the people... uh like Sarah Palin to shock jocks uh, on Fox, and unfortunately some uh, members also uh, of the Democratic Party calling for my assassination, calling for the illegal kidnapping of my staff. And and just a few days ago in Fox, that was the phrase that was used, illegal. It should be illegally murdered if necessary. If we are to have a civil society, you cannot have senior people making calls on national TV to go around the judiciary and illegally murder people. That is incitement to commit murder.
0: If you remember, one of the first things uh, WikiLeaks dropped were Sarah Palin's emails, and she was pissed. But she actually, a couple years ago, changed hey, this that. Is Sarah
5: Palin up in Alaska, and I'm the first one to admit when I make a mistake, I admit that I made a mistake some years ago, not supporting Julian Assange, thinking that he uh, was a bad guy that uh, elite material that perhaps he shouldn't and have learned a lot since then. And I think Julian did the right thing. And Julian um, did us all a favor in America, did the world a favor by fighting for what he believed was right. And ultimately he's been proven to be right. He deserves a pardon. Um, he deserves all of us to understand more about what he has done uh, in the name of real journalism. And that's uh, getting to the bottom of issues that the public really needs to hear about and benefit from. Uh, yeah, some years ago, I publicly spoke out against Julian and I, I made a mistake. I, I Like I say, I've learned a lot since then. Um, he I know that it's coming down to the wire and whether he's going to be pardoned or not. I want more Americans to speak out on his behalf and to understand what it is that he has done and what has been done to him as he was working on the people's behalf to allow information um, to get to us so that we could make up our minds about different issues, about different people. He did the right thing. Um, I support him. And I hope that more and more people, especially as it comes down to the wire, will speak up in support of pardoning Julian. Um, God bless him,
0: And God bless her too. Admitting when we make mistakes is something very important. And I am 100% behind her. The same thing This hacker culture, where are my geeks? Where are my fellow geeks? Where are the wannabe cicadas? Right? Where are they? To fight for exactly what they wanted to. The high-tech terrorists, like you saw on your screen that Joe Biden called him a high-tech terrorist, are actually the people that are sitting in office that have been selected in fraudulent ways. This is the problem that we have right now. They are the terrorists. They are sequestering our information. They're the ones that do not want us to have access to information. So, let's take a quick break and watch this um, pretty incredible video that I found. And um, before I share it, I wanted to, you know, all of you know that I've talked about um, string theory. Well, there's one type of string theory. It's called hier- hieronyma. hieronyma, Greek word, which means sacred string or yarn or thread. This is pretty awesome. Buckle up.
3: What if what I told you? you that you have psychic abilities? In fact, what if I tell you that everyone is born with psychic abilities? This includes telepathy, being able to manipulate other people's thoughts and even see glimpses of the future. This might sound like voodoo or witchcraft to you, but today, we're talking about the science of the little black box behind it. While all of these might sound unbelievable, many famous scientists, physicists, and government researchers have studied about the possibility of communicating without talking, healing the body with just free will and communicating with people within the realms of the dead. These seemingly impossible endeavors have been examined in a systematic way which resulted in amazing discoveries. What's more astonishing is that there already exists a machine which is now being used by psychics and scientists in England, Australia, Germany, and Western Europe to accomplish amazing feats with the power of thought alone. This machine I'm talking about will amplify all the inborn psychic abilities you may not even realize you have. This mechanical device, also called the little black box, is a psychotronic amplifier, which is based on the new science of psionics. Realize that this device is already patented in both Europe and the United States, and psionics has been extensively researched by Columbia, Yale, Duke, and Pennsylvania universities, Dow Chemical Company, and especially the prestigious Soviet Academy of Science, until its disbandment in 1991. Many reputable organizations around the world are also conducting intensive studies on the machine as well. Among them are the Institute of Noetic Sciences, founded and presided over by astronaut Edgar Mitchell and Mankind Unlimited of Washington, D.C., chaired by Dr. Werner von Braun. These machines have circuits that detect, amplify, and direct human thought and emotion. Author and science reporter Joseph Goodavage described, while Dr. William Hale, former chief of Dow Chemical Company explained it as, The psionic device connects a purely mental function, which we call ESP, with an image on a photographic plate. The design for the machine was patented in 1949 by T. Galen Hieronymus. By 1956, John Campbell, editor of Science Fact Magazine, said, scientists are now prodding at the edges of a new field that will open a totally new concept of the universe and that within 20 years the barrier will be cracked a manufactured machine will be achieved and i believe it will be done by 1975. this patented design when constructed can be used as a time photography machine a thought projector a mind over matter device a clairvoyant projector or psychic generator with it you'll be able to take pictures both from the past and And the future it it also can can locate missing persons no No matter matter where they they are in the world even even outside outside of it 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 also allows one to directly influence another 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 person's thoughts and emotions emotions and and compel those you love to acknowledge acknowledge your your feelings This device this makes, makes things possible. If this all if this sounds, all sounds too, good too good to be true, true then, then think again. As an, example, as an example, recreating a physical object, object from your mere mere idea, idea of what it should be it should was be. done, was by, done by, by a technician a from a, from a ca- California power California company. company. The company had had a, had a series, breakdown series breakdown in their electronic, electronic circuitry that was untraceable. untraceable. And the psionic, and the psionic device, device not, only not only located the located problem, problem it also, also repaired, repaired the damaged the circuit. The power, power of mind, mind alone. alone. A new circuit, a new circuit was actually material. materially formed, really formed to repair, to repair the, the breach, making a, a completely workable, workable a circuit again. Our power again. Was, was immediately restored to the lines. lines. This shows, that shows, the thought, actually forms matter. Another point to touch upon is that psionics is not new. It dates back to ancient Egypt, and even farther than that. It's believed that these ancient civilizations have already used their version of a psionics machine. It is widely accepted by many Egyptologists that the building of the Great Pyramids could not be duplicated today, even with our advanced engineering techniques and modern heavy equipment. Some concluded and accepted the evidence there might have been strange devices that existed long before that were used by ancient engineers capable of moving giant blocks of stone and granite through the air. Devices that had the power to manipulate matter to defy the laws of known physics. Skeptics might say, if that was true, then we should have heard about such things a long time ago. It should even be written in history books. But realize that humanity has undergone many social changes. Multiple discoveries were lost and rediscovered many times because the reigning societies deemed them dangerous. A solid example of this is the secret of flight. The working knowledge of aviation existed long before the Montgolfier brothers made their first balloon flight in 1783. The first known scientific account of a flying machine was that built by a Jesuit, Bartolomeu de Gusmao. He even sent a report, along with a request for permission to try it out to his king. John V of Portugal. This machine was admired by thousands of people in his time, but the secret of how it functioned was carefully ensured by putting the only set of precise plans in the Vatican Library. It is remembered to resemble a modern airplane whose mouth flew the machine before the king and the entire court, but it caught fire and crashed. Another attempt was made, and it was successful, but it was all eventually hushed up. The Inquisition judged the machine to be the work of the devil, and the ever-obedient... Guzmau never revealed its secret again. Imagine how many more of these discoveries were swept under the rug, just waiting to be found once again. The first thing to prepare for using the machine is not the mechanical device at all, it's your mind. The machine needs a source to tap into, and this source is essentially the human thought. The amazing thing here is that anyone can be the source. The person just needs to hone his already existing psychic abilities. As I've said, this machine can make the impossible possible thought is energy energy creates matter and matter can be returned to energy form energy is the source tapping the source can enable you to manipulate energy change it into matter cause material effects and essentially create or manipulate emotion in actuality man has already been doing these amazing feats for a long time already albeit on a small scale this discovery that the human The mind is capable of creating miracles is the basis for the psionic machine. Think it. It seems impossible to control your heartbeat, respiration, and blood pressure. But yogis are able to do it. Are they different from us? No. They simply were able to practice their mind's ability enough. And you can do it too. Moving forward, all known matter in the universe consists of atoms. May it be a tree, a table, a rock, you, everything is made up of these tiny particles of energy and everything in the universe being made up of energy is part of the electromagnetic spectrum. The electromagnetic spectrum is a band of frequencies running from below six cycles per second to well over 50 billion cycles per second. And everything we know registers somewhere in that spectrum. The human brain itself has electrical patterns and wave frequencies. These energies can then be harnessed by the machine to produce matter. So everything radiates a frequency. And these radiating forces have common occurrences. Biological radiation. You radiate. And I don't just mean your brain. Works, but every single atom in your body. You radiate emotionally, intellectually, and physically as well. What the psionic machine does is that it converts thought, unseen energy, into something tangible or recognizable. This then allows the machine... To enhance the power of the mind for you to be able to do miraculous feats like telepathy and seeing things that aren't normally visible to the human eye. 25 years ago in Czechoslovakia, Dr. Kurlian and his wife were experimenting with a related device, and quite by accident, he discovered that by putting his hand into a very high intensity electrical field, miraculous things seemed to happen. He was able to see the electrical field of atoms in his hand. Years of experiments followed this incident due to government interest, which led to the ultimate discovery, the actual viewing of the astral body within a human being. This commonly ridiculed concept of an astral or soul body was actually seen with the Curlian device, and photographed too. With all these discoveries, the saying mind over matter seems to have a different meaning now, and it seems like telekinesis, teleportation, Levitation, etc., would fit right into the puzzle. They don't seem too impossible anymore. There are at least six different psionic machines patented by different people in separate places. All these devices operate on the same principle, and oddly enough, most of them have similar circuits. We we use as an example the only American device granted a patent, a Hieronymus machine. In 1946 Hieronymus found that any mineral or compound could be identified if a sample of the specimen were placed in the machine. He concentrated on the substance he wanted to find, while at the same time he turned the dial. It operates similarly to fine-tuning a TV set. What happens is that no matter who operates the machine, it is able to detect copper, for example. As long as the operator thinks and concentrates deeply on that substance. Nothing else will stick or be detected by the machine unless it is thought of. There are guidelines and instructions for making your own little black box, but these DIY machines mostly just perform basic tasks. If you're interested in doing exotic work, such as psychic photography, deep space audio reception, health experiments, especially with color irradiation, etc., you would need to adapt these plans for those functions or purchase such devices ready-made. Although beware, creation and use of the psionics machine is not for the impatient, for it could be more dangerous than beneficial. Psionics are still in its early stages as of now, but it comes with a lot of promise. Seemingly impossible feats now not so far-fetched. In the years to come, Think about what more we can do with all of this energy available around us. Science has been reaching breakthrough after breakthrough that bring us closer to understanding the world, how it's created, and how it works. What then seems to be works of higher beings are revealed to us that it can be done by anyone with enough practice. Who knows what more the human mind is capable of? These machines will probably be used by many. The most likely outcome is people in the shadows or in the government might already... We'd be using it today for various reasons that we are completely unaware about.
0: And that is so true. I have no idea why everyone's complaining about the audio. I'm hearing it fine on this end. I've like closed all windows, but I'm going to take you somewhere else. I'm going to take you into a more focused and how you can create your own machine. See. Like the narrator said, there's people in the shadows that use this. And um, what you're about to hear is kind of going to blow your mind because this is all documented. Again, we go back to the people are thirsty for knowledge, hungry for information. And my frustration comes out, um, I guess, in my mannerisms of speech and um, pedestrian articulation of how I feel, but here's where it gets fun.
4: Hey everyone, this is Decker from Enigmatic Devices. And this video is the story about a truly weird device, the Hieronymus Symbolic Machine. Some people claim what this device can do is amazing, yet it doesn't have parts. Yep, you heard that right. Check out this video to hear the full story. And if you like this type of content, make sure to subscribe to my channel. Okay, here we go. You encounter them every day, but have you ever stopped to think about what makes a machine a machine? Merriam-Webster defines a machine as a mechanically, electrically, or electronically operated device for performing a task. But consider for a moment a device that has no parts or power source and whose function is defined with just lines and symbols. If it's somehow amazingly and miraculously, manages to work, can it still be considered a machine? This is the odd story of just such a device. To understand the symbolic Curinimus machine, you first need to know the origin story, a patented device of the same name that was not symbolic at all. And here's where we meet Dr. Thomas Gallen Curinimus. His invention was an electronic device intended for the detection and analysis of minerals, using a phenomenon he called eloptic radiation aptly named the uranimous machine he was granted an actual patent in 1949 parts included a simple pickup coil an optical prism an amplifier circuit and a touch sensitive output device to operate the device you would simply place an object such as a mineral by the pickup coil so that the eloptic radiation could flow through the circuit and be amplified by the prism using a combination of a touch sensitive plate and a tuning knob you would then adjust the device for the sample now with a known value or rate, it becomes possible to find out if that same mineral is present with future samples. Dr. Hieronymus believed that all matter gives off this optic radiation, that it resonates at different rates depending on the material, and that his device could be tuned to detect that rate. Obviously, there is no supporting evidence for this form of radiation. In fact, the machine doesn't even opt by any known principles of physics. However, users have nonetheless claimed success with being able to consistently figure out the mineral composition of unknown objects placed by the device. Now, if that's not strange enough, here's where the story really gets weird about the Hieronymus symbolic machine. Some people claim what this device can do is amazing, yet it doesn't have parts. Yep, you heard that right. Check out this video to hear the full story. And if you like this type of content, make sure to subscribe to my channel. Okay, here we go. You encounter them, you every, encounter them day. every day, but have you ever stopped to think about what makes a machine a machine? Merriam-Webster defines a machine as a mechanically, electrically, wow. or electronically guys, operated. Guys,
0: I have no idea why my audio is coming out like that. Like, there is nothing that would cause it to act the way it is. Give me a second, let me try. Hold on, is this better? Let me see, let me see the chat. Tell me if this is better. Is this better? Let's see, I'm gonna see when I come up. Let me try this. Is that better? Yes. Okay, my voice is fine. Let me try the video now.
4: A device for performing a task, but consider for a moment a device that has no parts or power source and whose function is defined which is lines and symbols. If it's somehow amazingly and miraculously manages to work, can it still be considered a machine? This is the odd story of just such a device. To understand the symbolic Huronimus machine, you first need to know the origin story, a patented device of the same name that was not symbolic at all. And here's where we meet Dr. Thomas Gallen Huronimus his invention was an electronic device
0: it turns out that for some reason um this video doesn't want to be out there and i will see if i can get this up for you tomorrow we could do a whole show on this the reason that i showed it to you is is that this machine you can actually draw on paper with a pen not even plug it into the machine and it'll still work this goes back to me encouraging everyone to go and watch dr bonnie bassler's TED talk on how bacteria talk and um, that is yeah I guess what is going on rumble seriously I am so sorry I will download mp3 version that I can hear without static so that I can provide to my archivist so it can be on um, iTunes I will re-upload this episode as well I'm so sorry. I have no idea what's going on. I will work on it. I apologize. All right. I'm going to try this again. Let me let me know how the sound is now. Let me check the chat. Let's see. Maybe it's better. Am I still crackling or is it better? Is this better? Huh? Okay. I'm clear. All right. Let's try the audio for the video. Let me try this again. Give me a second, let me pull it up.
4: ...it's intended for the detection and analysis of minerals using the phenomenon he called a radiation. named the Euronimus machine, he was granted an actual patent in 1949. Parts included a simple pickup coil, an optical prism, an amplifier circuit, and a touch-sensitive output device. To operate the device, you would simply place an object, such as a mineral, by the pickup coil so that the eloptic radiate using a combination of a touch-
0: Yeah, it seems that uh, I am not allowed to stream today, and I don't understand why it's working and that it changes. I'll ask Rumble to take a look and tell me, because I don't understand why I have the crackling sound. I, I hear it, too. There's no playback. It's normal speed. I even look it, you guys. It's like I'm calling tech support. I I, I know the system very well, and I'm not understanding why it's crackling. Um, I have no idea why it's doing that. Um, I'm so sorry. It's really bad. Well, I guess that's it for today. I appreciate all of you. Um, I'll be back tomorrow before my campaign event. I sincerely apologize, and I'll download this and re-up